I feel like an Englishman this morning. <laughs> I know the English. 25 years at Westminster Chapel, over 30 years in Britain. I know the English. Do you know the difference between an Englishman and an Irishman, a Scotsman and a Welshman? I've come to tell you. <laughs> two Scotsmen, two Welshmen, two Englishmen, two Irishmen were marooned on this island in the South Pacific and were discovered two years later. The two Scotsmen had formed a bank and were trading shells with each other. The two Welshmen had formed a choir and were singing. The two Irishmen had killed each other off in a fight. <laughs> the two Englishmen were waiting to be introduced. <laughs> Thank you, Boyd, for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> but I, I will tell you, I, listen. He's introduced me many times. He's retiring in December. He said, R.T., the trauma of introducing you for the last time. He said, I'll break down and cry. So I just relieved him. <laughs> we seriously commiserate with you your loss of your mother, 100 years old. We go. And a couple days ago, Joshua... Uh, Yusuf and his beautiful wife had their fourth baby, and we congratulate them. That means one more grandchild for Michael and Elizabeth. So good to be with you. Great honor. Do you believe that the church needs another reformation? Do you ever ask the question, whatever happened to the gospel? I'd like to read to you from the gospel of John chapter 3. These are all the words of Jesus. Verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And then verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the New Testament. Martin Luther called it the Bible in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And then verse 36 at the end of the chapter, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, 
for God's wrath remains on him. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this is most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard, received, applied as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent vehicle to convey everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Enable me to be very, very simple, very, very clear. And may this be a life-changing word and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Whatever happened to the gospel? Now, this question assumes certain things, and the assumption is that the gospel has disappeared. And I think that, I'm sorry to say, is true. When I look at the church speaking generally, the gospel has passed behind a cloud. And when you go to church in so many places, when you watch Christian television, again and again and again, you ask the question, whatever happened to the gospel? Uh, it's a great honor for Louise and me, TR, to be with you today. Uh, Michael and Elizabeth have been uh, dear friends for just about 20 years. I regard it as a great honor of my life to serve on his European board, to be a friend of the family, and he kindly invites me to come. The high watermark of the year is, is to come here. When I think of his ministry, uh, when I watch Christian television, <laughs> you don't need to ask the question, whatever happened to the gospel? And his ministry around the world to Muslims, incalculable. And I'm just thrilled to be here. Uh, Michael kindly allows us to bring some of our books uh, this is the time of the year when we want to get rid of my books. And we do it by selling them all for $10. They're supposed to be $15, $17, $18, $10, easy for you to remember. And my latest book is called The Presence of God. It's a book in which I distinguish between the conscious presence of God, which we love to feel, and the unconscious presence when we feel nothing. You see, the conscious presence of God is when God pleases us. The unconscious presence of God, it's an invitation to please Him, which gives you more satisfaction when He pleases you or when you have an opportunity to please Him. And that's what that book is about. Whatever happened to the gospel? And I am ashamed to say that it seems to me, as you look over the world, and in my old age, I travel the world, and I sense it wherever I go, whether watching television or going to church when I have a chance to go listen to somebody else, I wait 
and wait. When will they mention the gospel? You see, for one thing, the gospel seems too good to be true. On the other hand, it is so simple that many say, well, there's got to be more to it than that. And yet this gospel, which Paul explains in Romans, Galatians, throughout the New Testament, in fact, this is the way he put it in Galatians. He said, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. That is how sure Paul was of this gospel. And it seems to me a counterfeit gospel has moved in, and many people don't know the difference. Watch television. It's mostly about prosperity, health, wealth. We're living in a me generation. People ask, what's in it for me? A friend of mine in Scotland said to me some time ago, when he watches Christian television, he listens to the ears of an unbeliever. And he turned to his wife and said, if I didn't know otherwise, I would have thought that Christianity is all about money. But you see, that's where it comes. It's what it often comes to, whether in the 21st century or 500 years ago. When Martin Luther stood against the prevailing thing that was going on, and nobody questioned it, the idea that you can get out your wallet and buy salvation. You can purchase indulgences. These indulgences, they were told, will keep you out of purgatory a while, or you won't stay as long, or your loved ones can come out of purgatory. And the people in those days didn't have Bibles. They didn't know their Bibles. The church did not want them to know their Bibles. And so in ignorance, this is what they understood to be true. Well, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed what he called 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. These theses summed up come to one thing. If the Pope has power over purgatory, why ever doesn't he just let everybody out? Oh, no, they didn't want to do that because money was needed for the building of St. Peter's in Rome. And Luther felt this is not right. This is wrong. One of the greatest privileges of my life three months ago, TBN flew me to Wittenberg, Germany. And I stood at that same door where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses and preached over a couple of days also in a Wartburg Castle. Uh, this will be shown, by the way, on November 1st. We wanted it October 31st, but for some reason they said November 1st, better late than never, one day. <laughs> I don't know the exact time, uh, but you will see uh, the program that TBN has done on Martin Luther, and God has 
kindly opened that door for me. My next book, which comes out in January, has been graciously endorsed by Dr. Yusuf. I think the most wonderful endorsement I've ever had. He calls my book R.T.'s Crowning Achievement. It comes out in January. But what I will share with you today is just the tip of the iceberg, if that's the right way to put it, of my book that comes out in January. Martin Luther was born in Eisleben, Germany, in 1483, the son of a coal miner. When he was 20 years old, he was riding horseback when a storm came and lightning came and lightning crashed right by him, scared him to death, and he cried out, Have mercy on me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. Saint Anne was the patron saint of coal miners. Well, his father said, You don't need to worry about that, son. Oh, yes, I do, he said to his father. I made a vow to God. Two weeks later, he entered the Augustinian monastery in Wittenberg and became a monk. He began to read the Bible. He wanted to understand the Bible. He wanted to know God. And he had a heart after God. And it was extremely conscientious. You might say too conscientious. He would go to confession and stay there for two hours, confessing every sin he could think of, and then come back an hour later. He said, oh, I forgot one. And the priest said, oh, here he comes again. Who's going to take him this time? But he could see things that he thought were wrong. And he began to see the corruption in the church. And someone said, Martin, you know what you need. You need to go to Rome. See the grandeur of Rome. Have a little holiday. And when you come back, you'll be fine. He went to Rome. He saw the corruption, the sexual immorality of the priesthood. He said, well, what you, you need to do is to climb the holy stairs and say the Our Father on each step. And that will give you so many years out of purgatory. By the way, I've done that. I have climbed those holy stairs. I thought if Luther could do it, I'll try it. You kneel your way up. But when Luther got to the top, he asked the question, who knows whether this is true? He later said, I went to Rome smelling of onions. I came back smelling of garlic. Between 1513 and 1517, he had what he calls a tower experience. He did his studying and praying in a tower on the TBN program. They'll show you that tower. Uh, but it has a double meaning. He had a tower experience spiritually where he was raised to the heights of glory. We don't know the exact date, but at some time between 1513 and 1517, he, by the Holy Spirit, saw that righteousness is imputed to us by faith alone. He began to read the Psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 118, Romans, which he called the purest gospel, Galatians, which he later called by Katie von Bura, referring to the wife he would later 
Mary. He lectured through Galatians three times over his lifetime. But he began to see something that had not been seen. It's a mystery to many of us how this gospel could be hidden for 1,500 years. But there is an explanation. First of all, the apostle Paul talked about a great falling away. From the right hand of God, Jesus addressed the church of Ephesus and said, you have lost your first love. The first love is the gospel. And studies have been done on the doctrines of grace in the apostolic fathers. And it's a, a bit astonishing when you think about it. Uh, when you know that people like Ignatius and Polycarp, who was burned at the stake, these godly men gave their lives. You want to say, well, what they believed has got to be very, very good. And I used to have the rather naive view that if you want to understand the Scriptures, go back as far as you can to the earliest church after the death of the apostles because they were the nearest. But I began to see that was wrong because here's the problem. When you actually read what these men said, you find that there's not much gospel there. Sadly, uh, they emphasize good works to show that you're different. And so much of their teaching was high morals. And that became what Christianity was known for. And then you had the emergence of Gnosticism, and you had those in the early church who defended the person of Jesus, that he was very God of very God, very man of very man. And so people like Athanasius came along to explain the person of Jesus. That's why you have the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. But all during this time, the actual gospel was just more or less taken for granted. The nearest you come is in St. Augustine, where he talked about original sin, election, predestination. But even there, the gospel isn't as clear as we might wish that it was. And for the next thousand years, what we call the Dark Ages, with semi-Pelagianism, all works, 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 what we do to get our way to heaven. And so Martin Luther had this long tradition, and he began to see things that hadn't been seen. The amazing thing, he was by himself. He saw it. No one else did. And the courage that he had to say things that had not been said before. And for him to speak as he did and write those theses, how could he do it? Well, I can tell you. He said, faith is that on which you can stake your life. Even if you are denied a thousand times, you would never doubt this because this faith is so strong, you'll hold to it. And when he saw something that no one had seen before, that righteousness is put to our credit by faith alone. Now, he had a question. You see, when I raised the question, do we need another reformation? Well, the answer is yes, more than ever. In Luther's day, 
The issue was, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you're saved? The issue today, do you need to be saved? Do you need to be a Christian? This is the issue. We're living in a time when churches, right, left, and center, are embracing universalism. Hyper grace, you don't even need to confess your sins. Jesus paid it all. Or when it comes to eternal punishment, annihilation, that you cease to exist. And so the gospel has lost its power. But when Martin Luther saw that it was faith alone, he noticed that Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the just shall live by faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. And he labored over it and labored and prayed and prayed, and then the breakthrough came. His tower experience, faith alone. You see, Martin Luther asked a question no one had thought to ask. It's a question I fear that people don't think to ask today. When is the last time you heard somebody say, what's in it for God? Most people ask, what's in it for me? And so when you watch television, prosperity, teaching, health, wealth, God is wanting to look after you. It's the feel-good gospel to make you feel good. When we lived in Key Largo, right after we moved from London, a lovely couple lived across the street from us. Uh, they thought the world of Louise and me. And whenever I was preaching in the air, they would come and hear me. But if I wasn't there, they wouldn't come. I said, you need to go when I'm not there. Oh, we have found someone we can watch on television. And he just makes us feel so good. He says, this is my Bible. I believe what it says. And he says, you know, if we go to church, we can't smoke and we can't drink our martinis, but we can sit there. And when he finishes, we feel so good. I said, you don't get it. That's not the point. And they're still blind. Here is another assumption that I'm referring to. When Jesus gave us John 3.16, there were certain assumptions. One is that there is a hell. There's a hell. He has said it in verse 36. He said it in verse 18, that if you believe not, you are under the wrath of God. What is that? Well, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, who believes in him, whoever believes in him shall not perish, not perish. The assumption is you're going to perish. The assumption is all men are condemned. Only the gospel can help them. You see, living in a day, then people ask, do people really need to be saved? That's why we need another reformation. And do you realize why God sent His Son into the world? Why? What was it all about? Just to give us a happier life? Just to make us feel better? Listen, Martin Luther asked the question, what's in it for God? And he saw something. When the breakthrough came, 
that God just wants our faith. Faith alone, the way he put it, satisfies the passive justice of God. And when Luther saw this, he never looked back. And that's the reason he could take the stand he did. Though he stood alone, gradually some people began to follow him, the common people, the ordinary people. But now he was a hunted man. Because someone took those 95 theses down, translated them into German, gave it to a printer without his permission. Three weeks later, those 95 theses were being read all over Germany. The common people began to see things they'd never seen before. They were told that faith is just assent to the doctrines of the church. And if the church believes it, that's what we believe. We don't know what the church says, but if they say it, we believe it. And they didn't need to think for themselves. That's the way the priesthood wanted it. Keep them ignorant. But Luther began to see these things. And Germany was ablaze, and in two months, the Pope himself read those 95 theses. And now Luther was a wanted man, a hunted man. In 1520, he stood before the Diet at Worms, before the emperor and the cardinal. And he was to give an account of his teaching. Off to his left was a table with all of his pamphlets. And they said, Dr. Luther, are these your pamphlets? Yep. Dr. Luther, in the name of the church, will you deny what you've written in these pamphlets? He asked for 24 hours to think about it. Granted. So over the next 24 hours, he goes to his cell and he walks in his cell and begins to pray. He wrote out his prayer. That's how we know. He cried out, my God, where are you? I would have thought, I would have thought that God would send a thousand angels into his cell to say, Martin, we're all for you in heaven. Go for it. But no, he felt nothing. This is what I mean by the unconscious presence of God when we think nothing is happening. He says, my God, are you dead? Caught himself. No, you can't die. You only hide yourself. The next day, before the emperor, before the cardinal, Dr. Luther, are these your pamphlets? Yes. Dr. Luther, in the name of the church, we ask you to deny what you've written. Will you take back? Will you deny what you've written? He responded, I do. If you can show me that they are contrary to Scripture, but my conscience is captive to Holy Scripture, if you cannot show that they are contrary to Scripture, here I stand. I can do no other. And then he switched from Latin to German and says, God help me. Amen. He had no idea what was about to happen. He was kidnapped. 
by friends, but no one knew it at the time. He was taken to Wartburg Castle, several hundred miles away, where he translated the Bible, the New Testament, from the Greek into the German language. His way of translating it, all linguists agree, shaped the German language. And for the first time, ordinary people had their Bibles. And they were so excited, and they came to church now just to hear preaching. That's why they came. They wanted to hear the Bible explained. And then into England, a man by the name of William Tyndale mirrored Luther's teaching. He translated the Bible from the jerk into German into English. So as a result of all this, the Reformation spread, spread all over Europe, and the world was never to be the same again. Could it be that God has raised up somebody in this congregation? You could be the next Martin Luther. The willingness to stand alone and not need the pat on the back from friends but when you see what needs to be said, uh, by the way, I don't mean to be unfair, but have you ever led a soul to Jesus Christ yourself? Have you? Why do you think people need to be saved? Do you believe your loved ones should be saved? Do you? Do you believe your friends need to be saved? Do you? Why? Is it because it's going to make them happier? The, person, the first person converted under my ministry at Westminster Chapel was a man by the name of J. Michaels. His son is Al Michaels, the sportscaster. J. Michaels, a businessman, Jew from Los Angeles, on his way to Moscow, came to Westminster Chapel because his secretary in London persuaded him to come and hear me preach. He was converted that night. I didn't find out about it for years, uh, not years, months. We later became pretty good friends. I took him fishing. He took me out fishing, spent holidays together. But you know what he told me after he'd been saved two years? Here's his testimony. Before I became a Christian, I was a happy man. <laughs> Don't put him up before an evangelistic meeting. He's not complaining. He's just saying it was easy. He was on top of the world. And now he loses his family in the package. But you see, when you are convinced of something, nothing can stop you. And that's what happened to Luther. Now, there's another assumption. When Jesus gave this word, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, it was on the condition of faith that one is assured of not going to hell. Whoever believes in Him. See, universalism would be God loved the world, He died for the world, everybody will be saved. Wrong. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by 
faith. All that Christ did for us is of no value until we believe. And so you may believe certain things in your head, like those in the 16th century. They believed whatever the church says. But until you've embraced it in your heart, you're lost. But there's another assumption, and that's why I began reading at verse 7. Jesus said, you must be born again. Don't be surprised. And then he added a word. I wonder how many noticed this verse. John 3, verse 8, referring to the Holy Spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is everyone born of the Spirit. Do you know what this is saying? The ability to believe. Jesus said, whoever believes will not perish. How do you explain your ability to believe? Oh, Jesus said, the wind blows wherever it will. Did you realize that every conversion is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit? You are converted not by accident. It was what God did. You see, your natural birth. Uh, how many here, uh, let me see a show of hands, how many here, uh, before you were born, gave your parents permission to have you? <laughs> it had nothing to do with it. Maybe you didn't realize it. But if you're born again, it's by the Spirit. It's what God does. Why is it some believe and some don't? God said to Moses, quoted in Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And the fact that you've been born of the Spirit, that you were enabled to transfer the trust that you had in your good works to what Jesus did for you on the cross, how are you able to do it? You look back. Only God did it. Only God did it. My mentor, the man who put me in Westminster Chapel, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, used to say that a Christian is a person who is surprised that he's a Christian. You're amazed. You can't take any boasting for it. You can't brag about it. And so what happened is that when God sent His Son to die on a cross, there was a transaction on Good Friday. And so if you ask the question, what's in it for God, let me tell you, that's the way forward. As I heard on the uh, video a few minutes ago, the way to know yourself is to know God. Do you know what's in it for God? Do you realize what happened on Good Friday? While Jesus is hanging on the cross, the blood that He shed, here's a theological word some people don't want to use today. It's called propitiation. The blood of Jesus turned God's wrath away. That's the reason you can go to heaven. My old mentor, Rolf Barnard, used to say that the blood of Jesus and the fires of hell go together. The reason hell is eternal is because hell will never satisfy God's justice. 
but the blood of Jesus. One drop satisfies his justice. And so when you look to Christ and not yourself, when you transfer the trust you had in good works to what Jesus did for you, enabling by the Holy Spirit, you know you will go to heaven and not to hell. And I can tell you now, it's the most wonderful feeling in the world. Ask, what's in it for God? Then you'll find out, because God's wrath was satisfied, there's hope for you. It comes down to us that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, we have to say in all fairness that Martin Luther was still pretty steeped in tradition. He didn't get it perfectly right, but look how far he came. John Calvin, 20 years later, had a perspective and gave some perspective on Luther. It goes like this. Calvin said there are three causes for justification. One, meritorious cause, the blood of Jesus. Two, the instrumental cause, faith. And three, the efficient cause, the efficient cause, Holy Spirit. That explains it all. It just makes Luther clearer than ever. So on this month, we remember what a courageous, lonely man did. Turn the world upside down. God may do it for you. I can tell you one thing, your world will be turned upside down. I've got to close, but I want to ask you a question. Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, would you go to heaven, do you? And if you were to stand before God, you will. And he were to ask you, he might. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say? What comes to your mind? Suppose it's the real deal, and you're standing before him. By the way, you will. You'll stand alone. You won't have your parents. You won't have your friends. You won't have anybody to whisper the answer to you. If God were to say, why should I let you in? Nobody to help you, to coach you, to give you the right answer, then you have to come up with one. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes to your mind right now? If it doesn't come to your mind to say, because Jesus died for me, well, the equivalent, you're trusting what he did, his blood. If it doesn't come to your mind, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world, but that can all change right now. You don't need to leave here as you were when you came in. You can pray a prayer. I'll give it to you. You can say it out loud if you want to, or keep quiet. Say it in your heart. It's okay. He knows what you're saying. If you believe it, just say this, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you 
my life. That's it. That's it. Did you pray that prayer? I wonder. Could it be that somebody prayed that prayer? Did you? Did you pray that prayer? If you did, are you ashamed that you prayed it? Why do you ask, R.T.? Because Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. I'm going to ask you, if you prayed that prayer, in the next 15 seconds, I'm going to ask you to stand up. You can say, in front of all these people, yep. If you confess me before men, I'm not going to ask you to make a speech. Just by standing, you'll let everybody know you're not ashamed. Five, four, three, two, one. If you prayed that prayer, just stand up right where you are. Remain standing. Remain standing. Okay, remain standing. Keep, remain standing. Okay, you can stop clapping, but remain standing. You that are standing, I would urge you to see a member of the church staff. They would give you literature, a Bible if you don't have one. And if you're seated near some of those standing, you know what you should do after the service? Go up to them and encourage them and say, well done. Everybody stand.